Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke. And I'm Annie Warmke. That tone was just a thought I had. And uh, today, <laughs> today we're going to talk about community sustainability and resilience, or in a narrow four to three decision, city council passed a resolution in favor of survival. Where, so. where do you come up with these things? <laughs> I, I just worry about was, you. <laughs> I just thought that was cute. You know, it was a big debate, but it passed along. Which, which one was it? All right. So today we're joined <laughs> by Myra Moss and and uh, welcome, Myra. I'll just say hi. Welcome. Thank you. And I'm going to read a little bit about you that I got off the website. So it, it's bound to be true that you are a <laughs> professor and an extension educator at the Ohio State University <laughs> Extension Office. And prior to your work with the Extension, you served in administrative roles, several nonprofit organizations. You were director of City County Planning and Development Board of Athens, Ohio. And uh, you work with uh, the state, county, regional levels in economic and community development. Does that sum it up pretty well, or is that all just PR? Uh, no, that's pretty well. <laughs> All, right. All right, so you actually do those things. Well, welcome, and uh, and as I sort of alluded to in the beginning, we're going to talk about community sustainability and resilience, and hopefully, we'll get into what is what is the difference because I know we're big we're big on both, but I think we're a little more focused on resilience at the moment. Yeah. So, but right. I guess what I'm interested in, Myra, is what got you because being with OSU Extension, that's pretty conservative. And resiliency and sustainability, while they're hot topics right now, have not been. And I'm just wondering, how how did this evolve for you to go to this sort of sustainability mindset? Well, it evolved over a number of years. Um, I started out as an economic development director in two um, economically distressed Appalachian counties. And we were successful over the years in terms of attracting industry. And what I learned through that whole process was that it wasn't enough to locate an industry in your community um, in terms of creating jobs, because most of the managerial people and the higher level technical people, to be perfectly honest, lived in Athens and commuted to our community, which was about an hour away. Now, the reason they did, we found out, was number one, the schools were much better. There were more um, shopping opportunities, um, more things to do, more cultural and, and art um, amenities, natural resources, and um, Housing also was a big issue. So we found that, you know, and people in economic development are talking more and more about this quality of life and how important that is. And so we started looking at uh, looking around. And at the same time, the Brundtland um, Commission had come up earlier with a definition of sustainable development, which is um, meeting the needs of the future without, you know, compromising um you know, and use living within your natural limits. So we thought that made a whole lot of sense. So we started incorporating that into our planning activities. And over the next, oh boy, it's been about 10 years now, we've done about um, 12 or 14 communities, different kinds of communities, and helped them think through what it would mean to be a vision-directed, sustainable community. 
I'm I'm a, I'm not shocked that people don't want to live where they're working. Um, I think that happens. It's very elitist, of course. Um, yeah. it strikes me as that a lot of things would change if we if we were the missionaries living among the heathens, uh, so to speak. But so so I'm interested to know. You know, when I think about economics of happiness, which is sort of what you're talking about. Um, I, I just wonder the reason why, as good planners, we aren't laying that template of um, all the things that make up a, a resilient life or or a happy life. Why we're not laying that template onto communities so that there is some resiliency. Um, I think about one of the cities that I've worked with recently that has flooding, you know, all the time, and I swear I I don't see that they really have a plan. And that just strikes me as really weird because if you're if you're getting flooded out, doesn't that really impact your economics and your happiness and your health and all that stuff? So uh, what I'm getting at is, you know, how do we move closer to getting the deciders, um, which are these administrator people and elected people, to lay more of these templates onto um, how we move to resiliency and from where we are now? Okay, well, I think one way is to be engaged as residents of a community and to try to um, influence our elected leaders to develop this kind of mindset. Um, a lot of communities do planning, but they do it in a more traditional way, which are shorter term plans and do not are not really vision based. What we do, what we really believe works is if the community gets together, all sectors of the community, looking at social, environmental, and economic sectors of the community, get together and talk about their long-range future and what they want for a vision and find where the common ground is that balances that social, environmental, and economic. Then within that framework, resilience is critically important, and that usually comes up in the planning process because one of the things we look at is environmental and social equity. So oftentimes the people who are being flooded out are the ones who are um, lower income at risk. I'm not sure what, what is the appropriate word to use, but so sustainability takes that into account and says, okay, we need to work with this because you can't be a sustainable community without having social equity and environmental equity. So, so what is an example of common ground? Because it strikes me if you're really poor or even homeless versus people who have more than what they need. Um, I just wonder where you find common ground. Um, well, I'll give you an example of how we've we've done it in a community. Um, we do vision sessions. We go throughout the community. Um, we we hold vision sessions that represent the social and the economic and the environmental um, components of the community. One of the communities we did was Kent, and Kent, Ohio, which actually was the first city that adopted a sustainable. Um, plan, comprehensive plan in Ohio. And that was back in 2000. And, and 
the changes in that community are um, unbelievable over the last 10, 10 years. Anyway, um, so what we do is we bring people together so that they can hear each other and hear what each other's concerns are. We don't usually do that as a community. You know, we've got um, maybe the Chamber of Commerce and the business community off doing their thing and influencing local elected officials, and you don't hear from the people who are kind of left out. So what we try to do in our vision is bring in those people who are left out while also hearing from the more traditional people. And getting people together in a room, having them think about what they want for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren is a really powerful exercise um, because they're able to hear each other, they're able to hear common concerns, and they're also able to hear some concerns that they never even thought of coming from other people. You know, I'll give you one example. In Kent, um, we met with a group of homeless people, and two of the things that that they said that were really important were fix your curbs and gutters because we only have one set of clothes. And when we walk down the street and somebody walks by and splashes us, it's difficult for us to go to work that day. And um, they also felt that big box stores were the ones where they were able to start working and then build up a work history. So it was a real eye-opener for other people in the community who had never thought of things that way. Well, you mentioned the big box store, and and that just reminded me of a situation where there was a community developer of some sort or a city planner I was speaking with one time, and they're big announcement for the year, their big uh, success was bringing Sam's Club into the community. And and that was touted in their annual report. And we created 80 some jobs. And, and when I met with the guy, I said, well, how many how many jobs were lost? How many small businesses were put out of business because of this competition that you gave uh, tax benefits to this company and and I felt like I was speaking Swahili because, you know, the guy just looked at me like, what are you talking about? I mean, no, we created 80 jobs. And I was like, maybe, probably not. I mean, didn't a bunch of businesses go under, you know, as a competition? I mean, did you look at that? So so you're you're sort of putting forward a holistic approach, it sounds like. So how do you balance those kind of things? Uh, in the planning effort and get the elected officials to to buy into it. Yeah, well, that that can be a challenge. Um, we've developed plans where where the champions, the initial champions, have come from like maybe the Chamber of Commerce or a local group of people who are really interested. And one of the things we've learned is they are more successful when they get the local officials on board, because if you're going to develop any kind of plan, eventually they need to adopt it in order for it to really, really make a difference. So although community groups can start these sorts of things, um, it really should bring in the local elected officials. That's just kind of reality. Um, In terms of getting that balance, once we come up with a vision, which includes that balance, okay, and finds that common ground, then we develop what we call multidimensional goals, which is goals that include a social and economic and environmental benefit 
to the community in line with that vision. So we very, it's a kind of an evolved process, but we are very clear to try to make sure that we are balancing and interconnecting those goals. So like with your example about a big box and the person touting the jobs they created, when I first started in economic development, that was the indicator of success that I used. How many jobs have you created and have you expanded the tax base? That's the traditional indicator. What sustainability does is it says, okay, that's only one leg of a three-legged stool. You also need to look at what is your environmental quality and what is your social equity. So all that's why it moves beyond that strictly economic development. So while developing those big box stores, if you are choosing, if a community chooses to do that as an entire community, um, then you would also look at what the impact is on the other retail sectors in the community. You don't just do it in a vacuum and look strictly at jobs created. I have to say where we live, that that would never happen. You don't really care. <laughs> never they say never. Never. Myra's don't. on the job. She's going to okay, get Myra, well Myra's on the job. Well, so that brings me back uh, to uh, as the naysayer, but I, I'm wondering what incentives you bring to the table to bring in people who have not had a voice with people who are the deciders. How, how, what's the incentive that gets those people? Do you offer them food or money or uh, not prison time or? Guaranteed parking space. I mean, yeah. in my experience, people have to have some incentive besides the fact that we want to hear what you have to say. Well, Hearing what people have to say, recording it, and making it part of the plan is a, is a good incentive. That's a really good incentive. People want their voice heard. You know, they want their opinion expressed. Um, what we do is we do something called um, going to where people gather. <laughs> and this, oh, is where it gets kinda, yeah. this is where it gets fun. We don't invite people into a meeting, and you know, because that's really intimidating for the public to come in. I've oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, where you're in the city council and the council members are up on a dais and there's brass nameplates and, you know, the whole, and you're talking into a microphone. So we don't do that. What okay, we well, do Myra, is we Myra, um, Myra, I no. want to interrupt you here for just a second because I want to hear about, but I am going to remind everybody that you're listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Athens, Ohio, where it never rains, and reminding you <laughs> that it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. And and thank God I didn't know it's sunny every day. <laughs> it's sunny every day and the children are smart and, and Myra is on the job. <laughs> So we're joined today by, by Myra Moss. And Myra, I interrupted you rudely, so I'm going to let you go back and tell us how you guys go and get the opinions of people where they are, where they live, where they're comfortable. Okay. We, we basically figuratively go into their living room. Um, we've actually conducted vision, vision sessions in local bars when they have roasted chicken night, because that's where everybody in small communities comes. Um, or we've gone, churches are a really excellent place to um, be able to get people's opinions. 
Um, we've gone into schools. We actually went into a school in Marion, Ohio, and our uh, steering committee, which was comprised of all local people, um, bought or, or got donated ice cream bars. So when the middle schoolers were coming out of school, we gathered in the lobby and gave them an ice cream bar if they'd fill out, you know, answer a few questions oh, for so us great. about what they want. <laughs> so honestly, the, the creative ways people have gone to, and this is not us coming up with it because we work with people who know their community and know how to reach people and know where they gather. So that's what we do. We just go there and, and um, do a vision session and uh, it, the results have been, well, in one small town, 12, uh, Salem, Ohio, city of Salem, we, we reached 1,200 people, which is probably a pretty sizable percentage of the population. So it does work. It's a lot of work. A lot of volunteers get involved and facilitate sessions. And uh, then we gather all the information. And what you find emerges are common themes among those people who have social concerns, environmental concerns, and economic concerns. And that's where local um, task forces meld those together so that they find out where the common ground is. And then the common ground creates the vision. That is so cool. I want to come when there's ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, part of what we're talking about here, it seems to me that in economic, in the world of economic development, um, you know, it, it goes through phases like every other industry, but uh, there was probably bigger is better. And then sometime around the 70s, 80s, people started saying, you know what, maybe bigger isn't always better. We need to talk about sustainable development and how we can how we can maintain this growth instead of getting into a boom bust kind of cycle. And I'm wondering if maybe now we're not getting into a thing where you say resiliency as opposed to sustainability is is also a big deal because, you know, so many of our systems are designed today to rely on one thing. And, you know, in development, it might be big industry versus, you know, one big industry versus many, many small industries seems mm -hmm. a lot more resilient as opposed to, you know, the whim of the auto industry shutting down. But then I'm thinking infrastructure issues, things of that nature. How, how do you deal with smart cities? You know, if your smart city is there and it's all dependent upon the Internet, what happens when the internet goes down? What happens when electricity goes down? What happens when there's flooding? Is that part of your vision there is, is how do we have multiple backups to deal with the inevitable crisis? Um, yes, it is becoming part of our vision. When sustainability started out, we really didn't um, consider resilience specifically. But sustainable planning is now going in the direction of incorporating resilience because of exactly the types of things you're talking about. There's a lot of risks out there. And with climate change, there's going to be a lot more risks. And communities need to have the capacities and the knowledge and the skills to be able to deal with those types of events and, um, and build in safety and security for their community residents. Um, so that definitely becomes a part of any sustainable plan. 
Um, it's more critical in some areas of the country than others, but I can't think of too many places um, that it wouldn't be a really critical, important part of a plan. Um, and I think resilience can happen not only at the community level, which is where I mostly work, but also at the individual level in terms of building safety and security and what kind of skills and knowledge um, do you need to have as an individual to be able to um, withstand some of the shocks, for a better word, that we're going to um, see in the future? Um, in terms of working with, we know in southeastern Ohio, a lot of our communities are natural resource-based economies and have been from coal, well, from forestry to coal to oil and shale oil and gas. And you are prone to booms and busts. And what we try to do, and we did a sustainable plan actually in one county that was facing um, oil and gas development and we encouraged them and built into the plan to diversify their local economy, which is kind of what you were saying before, to make it go well beyond anything related to oil and gas, but build in that diversity so that it, when oil and gas, because it's not an if, it's a when, oil and gas um, you know, is no longer being used. Hopefully we're moving more toward, you know, moving toward renewables and non-fossil fuels. Then how are you as a community going to survive? You can't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it, it, that just reminded me a lot of times uh, I do a lot of instruction in solar and we see government yeah. jumping in and seeing, they say, okay, the coal industry is in the decline. So we need to retrain coal miners to become solar installers. And my first reaction is that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, I mean, <laughs> the only thing they have in common is they both deal in energy, but the skill set, the attitude, the motivations of a coal miner, they might want to become a truck driver. I don't know, or a computer programmer. It just you don't move them from one to another just because it makes sense on a piece of paper. So so how do you anticipate that? And and it sounds like it's in the planning of a not only a diverse workforce, but a diverse educational program within these communities. Absolutely. The the educational part of it is is critical. Um, and you know, and, and developing skills in a number of different areas. You know, a lot of a lot of coal miners and a lot of oil and gas people, if they're out of work, they want to start their own businesses. And um, that that can become a a a real asset for a community to have all those you know to have small businesses developing. Um, I think it's critical for a community though to really make an effort to um, prioritize the development of diversity and not necessarily, like you said, moving from one energy source to another simply because it seems to make sense at the outset. The technical college um, colleges that we have and community colleges that we have have wide varieties of job programs, job-related programs. And I think that um, those are the areas that we need to encourage people to move into, not just necessarily becoming solar installers, although they may choose to do that. What what kinds of things do you think are in the 
planning stages right now that are going to move us closer to the kinds of things that you are talking about? Um, I think that there may be opportunities arising at the national level, at the federal level, in terms of um, incentivizing green energy, green jobs, which are already critically important to the state of Ohio's economy, um, but will continue to you know, continue to blossom, I believe, over the next, um, I don't know how many years. Um, and I think that that's going to be an opportunity for um, communities to take advantage of. So I guess that's what I'm feeling encouraged about. Part of our difficulty is, um, is regulatory and policies. And I guess I see some upcoming policy shifts and regulatory shifts that will provide new opportunities for communities to be able to, um, to take advantage of. How do you see COVID-19 uh, influencing uh, this kind of planning? Ah, well, <laughs> yeah, it, um, well, from a very practical sense, um, we did start a project in a township in southeast, southwestern Ohio, excuse me, and we had to stop the program because a lot of what we do is based on face-to-face -face interaction. And that's not something that's happening much now <laughs> for good reason. So I guess what I see is until, you know, until things get back to some sense of normalcy, that it's going to be difficult to do any kind of um, community engagement I'm not sure that doing it virtually through Zoom, although that's probably better than nothing, but it's really that face-to-face -face people looking each other in the eye, sharing their ideas and sharing their thoughts that makes a huge difference. So until that's allowable again, I think that, um, you know, we're kind of in a holding pattern. And Maybe this is the time then to start thinking about that future when we will be able to do those sorts of things. We will be able to gather as groups. You know, we will be able to share our, our feelings and opinions face to face. So, and COVID is, is bringing out the inequities in our system where um, certain you know, certain racial groups, certain ethnic groups are affected more than others, um, that urban areas are, although it's now really come into the rural areas, and, and we kind of thought we were um, immune from that. And now we're seeing, I believe the county I live in, Muskingum County, is now one of the fourth worst counties in the state of Ohio. So, we didn't see that coming in the spring. We thought we were kind of, you know, immune from that, but now we're seeing it. So I think it's going to make some huge changes. I'm worried about the changes it makes to small business and what kind of future small businesses are going to have, how many are going to survive, what kind of support systems will be out there for them um, once we do come out of this. So I I can't answer your question. I don't have a crystal ball in terms of knowing exactly how this is going to be affected. But 
I do know that there will be some major impacts. Okay. Well, on that happy note, Myra, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I want to remind everybody that you have been listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. We want to thank our guests, Myra Moss. Thank you, Myra. Thank you. We also want to thank our Emmy award-winning producer, Adam Rich. And we want to thank you, everybody, for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable and resilient life is... Play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and Jay, I wish to heaven you would eat your veggies. No time. Till next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Tonight, I know the stars are dancing in the firelight. Soon we'll be together and all will be revealed. Mother Earth will sing and her children will be Find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at BlueRockStation.com.